When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, also called Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in the person in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it and saying, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. This is God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for our church, for these people who are here. It's good to be with them. It's good to see them. It's good to gather together and to hear your word. I pray that this time would be instructive. Um, I know as I've been thinking about this time, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of our story in this, um, a st- story that was embedded into some of the, the people who began the churches that started this church. And I'm just thankful for that journey as I think back on it and for the way that that you were faithful, God, through a lot of trying times, a lot of mistakes. And I just thank you for your faithfulness to us that we're still here to this day. And I pray that we would honor you and please you in the way that we live out the call you've given to us as a church. I pray we'd learn from the scripture in regard to that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a little bit of story, as I said in that prayer. So years, years and years ago, um, for me, I was about 18, 19. I just started working in custom car audio. So that's, that's what I was doing with my life. And some of you know this and some of you don't. So I was going to be a um, subwoofer guy and, you know, putting uh, DVD players in the back of car seats and all that stuff. That was, that's what I was doing. Um, and I was going to do that long term. And I was, I was the kind of person, I wanted to work on my car, and I picked up this 87 Thunderbird, and uh, to me, this was a pretty big deal, and I paid to get a stereo system in it that I found in the newspaper, and so for those of you who are familiar with Craigslist um, and you know Facebook Marketplace, they used to do print versions of these, okay, in the newspaper, that's where you bought everything. And so I, I found a stereo system in the newspaper, and I took it to Best Buy, and it was like... 80 bucks to put it in. And at that time, to me, 80 bucks was, it was like, I may not be able to buy lunch at school anymore because I just spent 80 bucks. So I was like, I'm never spending 80 bucks again. So I started to learn how to do this myself. I was like, this is, this is going to be my life. I'm good at this. I could figure this out. And, uh, but I also, uh, I graduated high school and I had gone to, to church where I'd, I'd been in a youth group and I was invited to help out with the younger students. And I went to one of these youth, uh, youth events, a big youth convention, and there was this guy who was an African-American pastor, and he was from an urban setting, and he was talking about some of the things he got to be a part of there and the ways that God was doing incredible stuff in his neighborhood. 
And he said something in there, and he said, some of you are called to give God more of your life, and you're called to do ministry with more of your life. And when, when he said that, it was a surprising thing to me, but I thought, I really need to, I really need to think about that. Maybe that's what I should do. And, uh, and I went back to my, to my little church here in Tucson and kind of decided, I, I told them, I, I gave a report about the, the event, and I said, I think I'm going to work here. I think I should work here. And they went, oh, really? That's interesting. Now, there's even more to my story, though. As some of you know, I grew up poor, and my dad was a mill worker in Oregon in the lumber industry, and, and he came here and worked at Grant Road Lumber here in Tucson for, again, those of you who are you know, of the younger sort. It's now known as culinary dropout. Um, used to be a, a lumber yard. My dad worked there forever. And uh, we came to Tucson uh, because we were kind of running away. Oregon, some things had gone wrong for us there, and we were trying to solve some issues. And in a very practical sense, we made a big mistake. Uh, we gave up property and friendship and lost everything in the end of it. And we, all, and we came here, and, and we lost all our money, and we were living in the mobile home parks. And so we lived at about Speedway in Columbus in a mobile home park that's probably better now than it was then. Um, and we didn't know anybody, and it was pretty rough. And a guy at our church let us move on to his property, and we, we hauled our mobile home over there, and that stabilized us a little bit. But an interesting piece is the whole time we were kind of in that realm and living in the mobile home parks here in Tucson, my parents, because of our background and, and how we, we used to live in this small town when I was a kid, they went to larger affluent churches and they put away all their money uh, to put me into private school. So I was always in the world where there was wealth and people were prospering and talking about that a lot even though my life experience is very different. And I was always going into that world, but I never saw any of those folks in mine. None of them ever came into my world. So with all that in mind, I was going to this church in the Amphi neighborhood, which is over, you know, Prince and, what was it? We were about Prince and uh, First Ave, Prince and Fort Lowell areas where that church was. And I came back there and I saw there are all these kids in this neighborhood. They get out of school every day and they have nowhere to go. And their parents aren't home and nobody cares and they would just sit around the church property. And I would see refugees walking by because at that point they were resettling a lot of refugees and I saw a lot of poverty and I was like, hey, I feel called to ministry and from my life experience, I want to see a church, not just that sits in a neighborhood like this, but actually engages with it and goes into this world. This was a denominational church where all the people, they came to that church because of the denomination. They didn't live in the area at all. And so they came in and then they left. I was like, no, I want to see us get involved. So, of course, I'm not in the Amphi neighborhood now. I actually worked there for a little bit. I worked for that church. I worked for the Salvation Army in that neighborhood. And then I figured out I had a lot to learn. And the church sent me to Chicago to study urban ministry and oddly, when I came back, the church that offered me a job several times was the wealthiest church in town, uh, one of them. And that's where I worked for a long time before planting a church. And I learned while I was there to talk with people and to encourage them to move toward people in other parts of the city. I remember one time, one of my students in the youth group, we were walking through a, a mobile home park. Uh, we were doing a service project of some form. 
And uh, we, were walking, we were walking in there to talk to somebody. And I looked at him, and he looked really nervous. And I just said, are you uncomfortable here? And he's like, yeah. You know, he's like, I've never been to one of these, you know. And I, and I just told him, I said, well, I grew up in these, and I'm with you. You're fine. And he was like, okay. And he took a big, deep breath. And we were able to have a good conversation about it later. But he just, I realized to him, he was never going to come here because he, he was uncomfortable. He was kind of scared of it. And now, after planning a church called Midtown, Mission Church is here, and we're very much in the middle. I look around and I think about, you know, we got Sam Hughes neighborhood one minute away um, where, where you've, you've got to have a decent amount of coin, you know, and even Broadway, Broadmoor. But then, interestingly, in our little nook, if you look at the apartments through that window and the apartments right over there, there's Section 8, uh, Section 8 housing. And I feel like, interestingly, our church is very in the middle of kind of those layers of culture that, that, interestingly, God put me in the middle of for most of my life. And it's interesting to see how that works. Then, of course, this is a church merger, so it's not just my story. We've got Nick, you know, and, and the Epicenter folks. And Nick started Epicenter, and one of the big drivers for him was he had, uh, you know, he, he was on disciplinary, um, he was in Bible college for disciplinary reasons, basically, from what I can gather. And uh, he, he came to Christ kind of unwillingly, kind of, it was, it was surprising, and ended up getting a job pretty quickly at a big uh, Calvary Chapel in California. And a couple things bothered him in that context, in that world that he began to enter into as a new Christian. And first was he had to clean up himself to serve Jesus, and sometimes in ways he couldn't find in the Bible. Like, why do I have to stop doing that? I don't see the Bible saying I can't, it seems like you say I can't do that. And it bothered him. And then he was alarmed at another thing about how much the pastors got paid. He, he was looking at this as a new Christian in this situation going, what? Why do you get that much money to tell people about the Bible? And so when he came to Tucson and planted a church, he was going to include people who weren't all cleaned up, and he was going to make his own money so the church didn't have to spend money on paying a pastor. And as you know, that's still what he does. And the music couldn't be horrible. That was another thing that really bothered him about. He heard some music minister that sounded like Kermit the Frog, and it's just been stuck in his head ever since. Like, no, none of that. And so, as you hear these things, you can look around this church, as simple as it is in a way, but you see that DNA. All of us are bivocational. We all gathered a little bit of that thing that Nick kind of had about the pastor shouldn't pull too much money from the church. So we've figured out other ways to do that. You can see it in our music. You can see it in our location. And you notice it in the fact that we don't make people get everything right to come. We really believe in grace and that grace sinks in and that God changes you in the ways he wants to change you. So we don't have to, we don't make you go through a whole bunch of cleanup before you become a part of the church. And what I'm saying here is we felt called to something through this period. And that those callings that came to some of us as leaders have been shared with our church, with a lot of you. We, we live out of it. You kind of soak in it as you sit under people like us. We, we talk about it. And therefore, we do things at this church differently than some other Christians do. So you're probably like, wow, it's story time at Mission Church, right? And, and it's, it's not. But I, I enter in with a lot of story because some of what we're doing this year is examining what we do 
in light of what we learn in the book of Galatians. And so this evening, keep that bit of story in mind because some of you are newer to this world of Mission Church. And some of you have been around a long time and that was all just review. But in Galatians, in the scripture that Jared read to us, I want to talk about Paul because he had a specific call and then a communal call that Paul sensed. And then I want, to, I want to look back at our specific call one more time here at Mission. So this is a very mission-centric sermon in a way. But Paul, as we've already established in past weeks, he's arguing in Galatians for something. He's arguing for the legitimacy of himself as an apostle. And this is an important thing to understand when you look at this part of the book um, and you look at the whole book. You need, to, you need to know why he's writing it to understand how uh, the letter would have come across. So apostles, we've said this in past weeks, were those commissioned by Jesus. So in this day, I mean, today you'll have, there are churches that'll say they have an apostle there. And usually what they're talking about is like, you know, it's like a gifting, like this person might have, um, they're, they're kind of a powerful leader um, and they, they look at the giftings of apostles in the Bible and they go, ah, oh, this person's an apostle. But in this time, when this letter was written, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ meant Jesus specifically had sent you. You were directly sent by Jesus. So that was the distinction. So Peter, is he an apostle? Obviously. Is James an apostle? Yes. Is John an apostle? Yes. Even Thomas? Yes. And Paul is arguing that he had been sent by Jesus. And so he was an apostle too. And that had, there was a lot like kind of resting on that idea because the people he's dealing with who are coming into, into Galatia and teaching different things are saying he is not an apostle. They were saying that he was kind of a, a second tier. He had learned something from the apostles, but he didn't really have the kind of authority apostles had so when they came in and they said, look, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved, um, these people were like, well, Paul said we didn't have to be. And they're like, well, Paul's not an apostle. And Paul is writing back to them and he's saying, no, I am. And he makes that argument in several ways. But he's, the reason for it, the reason for it is he needs these people to see that he has the authority an apostle has in order to protect them from these teachings that are going to pull them away from grace. And he also knows that if these people of Galatia, if they see that and they go, okay, yeah, Jesus sent you, which is what he's arguing, then these other people would have to submit to his teaching. And the, and the Galatians would have good reason to reject the teaching of the, the Judaizers because an apostle had said no. Okay? So that's what he's doing. That's his argument. That's what he's really talking about. That's the key argument at the beginning of this book is that Paul had been called as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so therefore he had some authority to say what he was saying. But a question in there that I think helps shed a little light on some of what I'm talking about from our story is, you know, why was Paul an apostle to the Gentiles? Why not Peter or, or James? I mean, what is that? What is it that Paul learned or knew that caused him to believe he was an apostle to non-Jewish people who we call Gentiles? Why was Paul making these big issues of circumcision and not having to follow the Jewish festivals his big thing? Why was he specifically the one carrying that forward? Why not Peter? 
Why not one of the other disciples? And there's some contributing factors to that. Um, Some assumptions we can make, I think, with confidence are that Paul had unique experiences of being kind of in the middle, interestingly. He grew up in, in Judaism. He called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he also grew up as a Roman citizen, and he knew Roman and Greek culture very well. He was excellently positioned, if you think about it, to advocate to Jewish people on behalf of non-Jewish people because he had kind of a dual citizenship himself, and he'd spent time in both worlds. He had unique abilities. He was a good writer. He was, a, he was an excellent, um, you know, he, he could, not only could he write, but he could write convincingly. He was good at argumentation. Um, On top of that, he had a trade. He could make tents. He could be out in places where his people were not, and he could get by. He could make a living. Uh, He could contend against other people. He had a a unique skill set. Months ago, I talked about Mars Hill and his presentation before the philosophers there. And it's evident when you dig into his presentation that he had studied the ways that rabbis from a Jewish tradition had argued in Greek situations among Greek philosophers. He had studied them because he followed their same methods. And he, and he was sharp. And he had these skills that he brought to bear. And I think that's a factor. But most of all, and most importantly, he was called by God. I'm going to read to you when it happened or when we find out about it. Acts 9, 10 to 19. It says, there was a disciple of Damascus called Ananias. And of course, Paul was on his way to Damascus when he had his encounter with the risen Christ. Okay. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. Paul was called to this, is what this is saying. Jesus, God himself, had chosen him for this. There's a little saying out there. I've heard it pretty recently. It says that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And that's not a biblical fact, by the way. It's, sometimes that happens. I don't think that's utterly wrong, that sometimes if God calls you, kind of like with Moses, who had a speech problem, God would have taken care of that, Right? Um, But at the same time, in this case, God absolutely pre-equipped Paul. He gave him experiences. He gave him unique skills. But at the end of the day, the main factor is that God chose him specifically to do this, said, you are my chosen instrument. And that's what we mean by saying God's 
call is that God has built you for this and said, I want you to do this. Now, by the way, I'm, I'm going to take a brief aside here. And it's interesting just because this topic is one, this is big in my family, in our story. And we had a discussion about this at our small group recently. But on the topic of hearing God's call, I want to I just try to debunk a myth really quick, because I think this is a big one. I, it's just popped up so much in the last few years. There's this misconception that calling equals you getting something like peace about something. And I don't know, I, I know in, in my wife's story, she heard it a lot. People would say, if, if you get a piece about it, do it. And I think it's, it's kind of a general thing thrown around in the church. And I cannot find it in the Bible. I, I see that there's a piece that transcends understanding that can prepare you for deep suffering. But it's definitely not just this like, I like this idea thing, like what a lot of people pitch it as. I mean, this is not what happened to Paul. I think we should be a little skeptical of that method of discernment. I'm not saying you can't feel good about a decision. I'm not saying that. I'm just suggesting a few things. I don't see it in the life of Moses. I don't see him going, you know, I feel a lot of, a lot of tranquility about leading your people out of Egypt. I think this is going to go well. This is a good career move for me. No, that's not how he felt. He was terrified. I don't see it in the calling of Jeremiah, which was a terrible calling. I don't see it in the calling of Hosea or any of the prophets. I definitely don't see it in the life of Jesus Christ himself. I mean, think of the Gethsemane prayer. Does he feel peace? As he cries out to his father, if there's any other way that this can be done, please take this cup away from me and sweating blood. Nor do I see it post-Christ in the life of Paul or any of the disciples. The calling can be hard. It's even disruptive. In Paul's case, I mean, he said to him, I will show, he said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Who feels good about that? I think the truth is we can be deluded into feeling called into what we want sometimes. And by the way, feeling peace is something all the cults and other religions get. I had a pretty important experience with some Mormon missionaries, and they were trying to evangelize me toward Mormonism. And I knew a, I knew a guy happened to be Mike's grandpa, um, which I didn't know back in the day. This is way before I met Mike. And so I went on a little, uh, a little journey with Mike's grandpa back in the day. And so I knew him through the bookstore where I worked, and I called them and I said, hey, these guys, they're really kind of trying to evangelize me. Would you go with me to meet them? Because I knew Mike's grandpa was really knowledgeable about, about Mormonism. And we went and met with them, and Mike's grandpa, Dan, was, man, he was, he was powerful. He, had, he knew his stuff. He knew their literature. He was like showing them things. He goes, you know, here it says this, but the Bible says this. Do you see a problem there? How do you accept both? You know, really good stuff. And they, one of the guys got up and he said, uh, you know what, this conversation's over. And they left. And, and I thought, well, shoot, you know, and oh, well. And a couple days later, I was getting a sandwich, just randomly walking to the sandwich shop. And there's one of the guys, one of the Mormon guys. And I went up to him and I said, hey, man, I said, I, I know that you guys probably didn't expect for somebody to be there that knew so much about 
your books, and maybe that kind of took you by surprise, but I, I just wanted to say, you know, nobody, I've grown up in Christianity my whole life, and nobody's ever told me I can't talk to somebody who disagrees with me. And it kind of worries me that that's what your senior guy did to you right there. And, um, and he looked at me, and he told me a story. And he said, I had, I've had a lot of doubts about Mormonism. But one of my elders told me, when you feel those doubts, you go outside and you take a copy of the Book of Mormon and sit down and pray and ask for peace. And I did. And it came. And I have to hold on to that. You see? You can get peace over a lot of things. Maybe it's best to seek that which is true, even if it doesn't bring you peace. Okay? Peace can be deceptive. It can be misconstrued preference. We need to be aware of that. All right, back to it. Paul was called to take the message of grace to Gentiles. That is non-Jewish people. So God knew what he was doing. He took his experiences. He took all these gifts and experiences, and then he called him to this particular work. It was the same gospel, um, but a work that, that required particular emphasis, strategy, and effort because he was planting churches out in places where there weren't Bible-believing, you know, Old Testament-reading folks. He had to take a different approach. He had to do things different. And some Jewish Christians pushed back against what was happening in these towns, and Paul had to advocate for these people and the type of ministry he was doing with this. So Paul was called to this particular work within Christ's church, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And I'm saying to you, there's a sense of call behind what we are doing as well. But there's not just for Paul a personal call. That's, it's not that simple. It's not down to just what I think we should do. There's also always a communal call. And that isn't Paul's emphasis here, but we do get to see it here. We do get to learn about it. There's, there's this visit to Jerusalem. So Paul had said that he had gone uh, briefly to Jerusalem and he saw Peter and James. Um, and it says uh, in some scriptures that this was James, the brother of Jesus. There's the word actually, he's just a relative. But no matter what, I mean, this is somebody who knew Jesus through family connections. And that's pretty incredible. But he met Peter and James, and then he goes back for a second time. And, and probably this second time was brief. Um, and probably the third time he went was what we call the Jerusalem Council. But the second time was probably when there was a famine in Jerusalem and some persecution going on. Peter may have been in jail, and Paul would have gone to support them by bringing some supplies. So he was saying, look, I've been there, but I wasn't trained by them there. They just accepted me. They accepted that I was preaching the gospel. They affirmed what I was doing. And then this third time that Paul went, out of five total, there's what we, what we call the Jerusalem Council. And that's where the elders in Jerusalem officially made decisions about what they were going to require from the Gentiles, from non-Jewish people. And they affirmed what Paul was asking for, even down to where they gave him one encouragement. They said, don't neglect the poor. And he states, which is exactly what I was committed to already. He, wasn't, he was like, they, they affirmed exactly the ministry that I got from Jesus. And so, although Paul's point here was to prove that he was commissioned by Jesus and they just affirmed it, 
we still learn from, that, from this time and these events some important things. First of all, Paul felt responsibility to provide material care, not just for his mission from Christ, but for the whole, for the broader church. He, he felt a responsibility to pitch in and care for the broader church. And you see him even at times arguing with Peter because he cares about the doctrine and the belief of the broader church. Second, he wanted to make sure, as he said in this scripture, he wasn't running in vain. So he wanted to go and have his message affirmed by the broader church for them to say, yes, this is true. This is right. You're, you're, you're on the right path. Um, he received this affirmation from this council of the broader church and, and submitted himself to that process. And later, you know, he's going to lean on the broader church to affirm these very specific things he's teaching about the Gentiles. And Peter's going to get behind him in that because of some of his experiences. And, and now my, today, my concern, to be honest, is even in saying this, that like broader church, what do we mean? Because there's like thousands of churches out there and some of them at this point don't believe Christianity at all. I mean, I remember when I first learned that when I went to study in Chicago and sat in some other church context and realized they don't preach Jesus here. And that was tough for me. And so it's, I want to, I want to right now kind of say, we believe in the broader church, but I'm aware that some of what looks like the church out there isn't. Okay. I know that. But look, that was happening back then too. These Judaizers may not have been the true church and Paul didn't submit to that, but he did submit to the true church. I want to suggest that there's always probably going to be layers of the church. And you should just understand and know this. There will be religious groups that disbelieve the gospel entirely. They may have crosses. They may talk about Jesus, but they disbelieve the gospel entirely and operate as some form of moral or political club. Okay, that happens. And then there's people who accept Jesus and just don't comprehend all of grace and what it accomplishes. And then there's those who know grace well. I think we know a lot of people in category two who accept something about Jesus but don't know quite what his grace accomplishes. I, I most uh, recently heard about John Barrage's tombstone in Liverpool. This is like a known thing. I just heard about it. Maybe some of you have known about it for a long time. But it's this just really famous tombstone. Um, and John Barrage was a contemporary of kind of John Wesley and John, or Charles Spurgeon talked about him. But his tombstone says this, and it's there to this day. Here lay the earthly remains of John Barrage, late vicar of Everton and an itinerant servant of Jesus Christ who loved his master and his work, and after running on his errands many years, was called up to wait on him above. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without a new birth. And then it gives this little rundown of his life. Born in sin. February 1716, remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730, lived proudly on faith and works for salvation till 1754, admitted to Everton Vicarage 1755, fled to Jesus alone for refuge 1756, fell asleep in Christ January 22nd, 1793. Do you realize what that timeline says? John Barrage was not in Christ as a pastor. He became a pastor first before he fled to Christ for salvation. I mean, that, 
that's huge. And this happens a lot. Like you can go through what this means is he lived in religious circles. He got a religious education enough to become promoted all the way to being a minister. But Christ was not his refuge until a year after being a pastor. And how fortunate for that church that he discovered it then and was able to, you know, request a tombstone like that, which is sweet. But that happens a lot. You can have all these religious layers, but not have fled to Christ. You can be religious, you can factor Jesus in, but not know him as your grace giver and the only refuge of your soul. And that leads to this third group who I think Paul was very committed to, and that's the faithful church of those who cling to Jesus. That's the Peter and James types, and that's who we should be committed to. There there are no lone rangers in Christ's church. I can... There are a lot of ways we could evidence that, but let's just look at one really quick. John's revelation at the end of the Bible. When he returns, when Christ returns victorious in the book of Revelation, and then there's this wedding ceremony that's kind of exhibited to us in which he receives his bride, which we learn is the church. He doesn't come back for millions of brides. He comes back for one, his church, all united together from all times and places and ages. Now, Jesus, he knows your name. He knows every hair on your head, but he is committed to his entire church and we should be committed to it as well. There's always a communal call. You and I are not just called to our relationship with God, our own individual mission. We're called into the community of the saints. And the book of Hebrews says, as we go through our Christian life, that the the saints that have gone before are cheering us on. Those from the past who have died are rooting for us. They can see it. We should see it. And we're called to the joint mission of the church. And that joint mission, if, if I were just to say what it quickly is, I think there's two great commissions. I think at the beginning in creation, we were called to steward over all creation, to be fruitful, to, to multiply, to steward over all things, and to honor God for who he is as revealed in the Old Testament law. I think that's a commission for all believers. And then Jesus comes and he says, go. He says, you're my witnesses. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded you, which brings the Old Testament right back in there. And we're supposed to do that. Okay, so what about us here at Mission? I want to tie in a little bit more, like having said all that, what about us? How, how are we going to live that out? How are we trying to live that out? How, how can we do more of that? Weeks back, I showed you this simple little illustration of the outpost church model, and John's going to throw it up there. I learned something last week. If I point this way, it works for you. If I point this way, it works for Zoom. Do you see it, everybody? Okay. Now, this wasn't originally ours. We didn't make this sketch, but when I read about it and I saw it in a book by a guy named Mike Sayers, I thought, that's what we've been saying and thinking. This captures a lot of some of this call that we sense. And the circle represents the true church. And those who believe the gospel and know Christ, that's the circle. And we have no desire to be separate from, that, from those folks. We have no interest here at Mission, in reimagining what Christianity is as at its core or leaving the church of any form. From our earliest days, we've always felt we were called to remain firmly planted in the faith as passed down to us from 
from the apostles, the disciples, the, the churches that have gone before us. It's very important. And that's why we, for example, affirm old creeds. Uh, if, you, if you journey through our website, you see stuff like this. The Apostles' Creed. I mean, the reason we picked that as the way to say, can I participate in worship here at Mission? Is because that's the oldest summary of Christian doctrine we know of. We want to be connected back to the church all the way back to the apostles as best we can. So that's a great summary of faith. Even though anyone's welcome to come and observe, if you want to know what we mean by being a Christian, the Apostles' Creed, that's, that's something we kind of affirm. Our elders also accept an old detailed creed or a confession, the Belgic Confession, and that's because churches we work close, closely with work off of that too. And we, we also love it because there was a lot of work put in hundreds of years ago into some of these details of what the church should do, and we kind of feel like we want to honor that. We want to listen to the wisdom in there. We're not just, you know, we would be silly to think that we have way better information in all ways than some of those folks. On top of that, we believe here at Mission we need to be connected. In the past year, you know, many of you know we joined the Christian Reformed Church, and that's, that's a new thing for us to be a part of a denomination, but we thought we need, to, we need to have accountability. As I told many of you at the members meeting this last time, you know, we ask you as church members to have accountability to your elders, and we as elders of this church said, we need to have the same thing. We need to have accountability above us, and we really do believe that was a good decision, and it's given us far more support than we expected. Many of you know that even before we did that, we actually have the opportunity to host a pastor's group here, and we do it with the Gospel Coalition, and there's like 35 Tucson pastors that are a part of that, and we're building deep relationships, and you invest in that, by the way, though you're not there, but you do. They come in, into here, into our space, and they, they like, love coming here. We're right in the middle of you know, east, north churches. They come from you know, south Tucson. They come and they meet here, and we talk about stuff. We talk about difficult things. This past year, we've talked about how do we talk about race in the gospel. We talked about vaccines. We talked about conspiracy theories, stuff that like, gets into the, the world of our churches as pastors, a bunch of us have gotten together and said, let's talk about that. Let's work together. Let's make sure we're saying the same things. Let's learn from each other on this stuff. And it's been really valuable. Really, really valuable. We've also uh, been committed to collaborating. That's why other churches are in this space. That's why we allow groups that are giving themselves the community or building up the church as a whole, use this place for no charge. And you guys support that. You know, Young Life's done their banquet in here. Athletes in Action have done their fundraisers in here. InterVarsity's done fundraisers in here. Hands of Hope's done their fundraisers here. And that's all free of charge. And that's because we have invested in collaborating. We want to be a part of the broader church, and, and you all have supported us in doing that. We've served with other churches, done, you know, like Christmas Eve with Redemption, and we've done Christmas Eve with other churches. We love to be part of the broader church. Now, that said, just as Paul, though, was called to the Gentiles, we feel a call. And it's built into that illustration you see. You see that little circle? Look at that, either way. Um, that circle on the edge, we feel a call to the edge. And that comes from our stories. We feel a call to the space where if people are leaving the church and they're getting disgruntled or confused or feeling left out, we want to meet those people. 
We really love those people. Why is that? A lot of our leaders have been those people. We know what that feels like. But also, we want to be there for people who are moving toward the church for the first time. We kind of want to be, it's this outpost idea, like we're there on the edge, we're committed to the church as a whole, but at the same time, we're very aware of those who are outside of the church looking in, trying to kind of peer in and understand, and we want to be there for them and talk about things that, that help them kind of wrap their minds around that and think about it. I mean, you know, this was, that, that was like Nick. You know, that's, that's the kind of like experience some of us have had of like being new to the area, new to the church, trying to wade through this stuff, trying to figure this stuff out. And that means our church is going to look different. We've purposely tried to diminish what I would call unnecessary cultural layers that make church feel foreign to people. I think about this stuff all the time. I, when we were thinking about how to just present ourselves at mission, things like using really religious language and having you know, things that are strange to people if they walked in off the streets, I, I have this huge awareness of that. So I went into places like Bookman's and Raging Sage and you know, places that Tucsonans who are unchurched like. And I, and I tried to ask the question, what, what is it about this place? What do they like about this place? How can we come across more like that? Because we want those people to come and see and meet us here. And we want this place to feel like they're at home, not like they're entering a whole different culture. And that means that we're going to address issues that those people are peering into and that the people who are peering out of Christianity are wondering about. So if there are ever moments where you as like as somebody who's been in church forever are kind of like, why are you always talking about that cultural thing? Well, that's why. Because when people in our culture are engaging with faith, it usually is right around some issue or sticking point. That's where they're asking the questions. And that's why we believe we need to be a part of those discussions. That's, that's sticky stuff. It's kind of hard to do. And we are going to lean more into that stuff than other churches because we feel called to that. It's been in our experiences. It's been very deeply embedded in our, in our story, in our sense of God's call for our lives. And as, of course, as with Paul, we don't just view these people as like, you know, those folks who we want to reach. We relate. Just like Paul, he understood the Jews, but he also understood Roman and Greek culture. He got it. We relate. We get it. We kind of have feet in both worlds, and we're pre-equipped for this. And that's good. It also grants us a unique role because we're staying connected to the broader church so we can report to the broader church and sometimes even educate the broader church. It, it makes me, I just can't believe it sometimes when I sit in that pastor's group and think that our little church, they're always asking us how people feel, how young people feel. And I'm like, why? You know, we, we have some. But interestingly, for as small as we are, we're engaging with far more people outside of the faith than most of the larger churches I know. And they, they're asking us how, how to talk to people, how to understand where are people coming from, how do they feel. And that's a bit of our call. It's a call to the broader church as well. And sometimes we get the chance to kind of share with the broader church something that they do that may be asking more than grace would ask of folks. Kind of like this circumcision issue is asking more than grace would ask. Sometimes we have an opportunity to say out to the broader church because we've developed these relationships you know, that, that's probably not a good thing to stand on. Grace may not demand that you stand for that. 
So, all right, a little bit of recap before we conclude. Here at Mission, we have a sense of call. It comes from our stories and our experiences and from our gifts, from our strengths. Um, but it comes from God. We've been on a journey. It's, it's undeniably obvious to us as leaders, especially, I think, to Nick and I, like God was leading down this path. And it involves deep commitment to the gospel. We see a similar theme in the life of Paul. His experiences and skills prepared him to take the gospel to non-Jewish people, but ultimately God was choosing him, and that's what made the difference, and we sense that. In Paul, we see that that personal call was also submitted to the broader church, and we are trying our best to do that too. We see him gaining approval from Peter and James and later submitting his teachings to the Jerusalem council, and their elders backed him up. And we see this grace is upheld and, t- upheld and taught in his ministry with Christ's authority. And we're trying our best to submit ourselves as well and maintain faithful to the gospel, but faithful to the call to be connected to the church, but deeply embedded and right there on the edge where people need a church to be located. So I hope that you all are in. I know this is a lot more of a story sermon than normal, but I hope you, you're, as you're thinking about this and hearing this, even though it's Super Bowl Sunday, I hope you're in because we need a church all pulling together. We need more leaders that feel that call. We realize that some of us initiated it, but we need more people to own it. We need support. We need your, your work, your help, your prayer. And ultimately, what we want to do, our desire is to spread the good, news, the good news of God's grace. We want to see people move toward Christ who were either far away or who were running away like prodigals, who were hurt or conflicted or confused. And we want to gather more people to Christ's table. Because though the call isn't always something easy, it's not always the calling that we want, it's beautiful. I don't think Paul ever would have said, And I know he wouldn't. He never would have said, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have followed God's call. And we're not going to feel that way either. Jesus says his burden is light. When we yoke ourselves to him and when we work together with him, even though it's difficult, it's light. And it leads to true rest for our souls. We really hope as we move into this new year, the difficulties that are ahead, the joys that are ahead, that we have a communal call and that we work toward God's call for this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for for the folks that are here. It's always interesting to come together on on a day like this, like Super Bowl Sunday. Um, It's a strange experience. It's a strange experience in 2021 a strange experience to have some of us on Zoom, some of us here, some of us gone. But God, at the end of the day, we're just so grateful because you've drawn us together. Many of us would have, there'd be no friendship outside of this church. We never would have met. For some of us, this church is where we've discovered grace or where grace went deep and where we finally fled to Christ. And for some of us, this church is where you've called us to give our lives, to join your mission, to join this calling. And whatever that is, God, I pray that you'd make it evident to us, that you'd bind us together, that this call for us wouldn't be a sense of pride. It wouldn't be 
some way that we just, you know, say, ah, we're better. I pray that we would be deeply committed to the, to the gospel and to your church, but deeply committed to our mission. So help us by your grace to do that and to see that. And God, now as we enter into the time of just reflecting on who you are in these songs, I pray that you'd encourage our souls, root us in the gospel, and give us a deep sense of what you would like us to do. In Jesus' name. We're going to worship in three ways. We're going to sing. Um, We always have giving. As I've talked about all these things that we do, the giving is a huge piece of that. It's what, what allows some of us to run really, really hard toward these goals. Normally, as I said, we want to invite more people to Christ's table. And normally, we would come up and just assert our belief in the gospel by taking the bread, which represents Christ. It says, this is, this is my bread of life. This is the most important thing to me. And then drinking of the wine, which points us forward to that wedding feast that's going to happen when Christ returns victorious, that in Christ we have victory and we're united as one. And though we're not doing that for pandemic's sake, I want to encourage you, we do. Like, let these songs, let this time be time where you reflect on that, where you believe the truths that are captured in the supper. We're going to take a time of confession as well, actually, right now before we sing. And I just want to ask you, the, you know, if there's a specific, if there's something you need to put before God, a way that you've been rebellious or strained away from him, please do that. But, but outside of that, even just reflect on this idea of, of the call for our church, for yourself. Um, and just, just come before God with that and ask, what do I do with that? How am I to be your instrument? What does it mean that I'm a part of this church? And just give that a couple minutes of prayer with all of us. So let me invite us into that by just saying a brief prayer on the front end, and then I'm going to leave two minutes of silence for each of you. Father, I'm, I'm grateful that we can come before you and that we can be raw and unpolished. None of us have prepared for this time. Um, maybe we don't even know what you might want us to do. Thank you that we can come to you in our brokenness. Thank you that we can come to you even when we're wrong, when we're going the wrong direction. Thank you that we can come to you in the midst of our sin and that you'd prefer that. You'd prefer that we came to you in the midst of our sin than waiting until it's over. Because you're our father. You're present. You want to help. You want to encourage us in your grace. And you want to call us to your mission, even though we fumble it so often. So meet us now, God. Lead us as we pray. Impress upon our hearts whatever you will. Help us to trust in you more than our sense of peace. And guide us now as we pray.